Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the OIS China Programme. My name is Michal Meidan. I'm director of the China Energy Programme at the Institute. This is our first podcast for 2024. We are recording on the morning of the 5th of January. I'd like to take this opportunity to say Happy New Year to everyone. In this podcast, we will take stock of what happened in China energy policies in 2023, drawing on a comment that we published at the end of December titled Four Contradictions in China's Energy and Environmental Policies in 2023. But of course, we'll also discuss some of the issues that we are watching and thinking about for 2024 in China's economic energy, but also climate trends. I'm delighted to be joined today by one well, of my partners in crime here at the China Programme, Senior Research Fellows at the Institute, Anders Hovey and Philip Andrew Speed. Happy New Year and welcome back to the podcast. If I can simplify a little bit some of the issues that we've been watching uh, from both a market and a policy perspective before we get into the questions, I think there have been mainly sort of three. The first, which was very striking in 2023, was the seeming mismatch between a weak macro environment, especially as it relates to the slowdown in the real estate market, and energy commodity demand, which was really strong. The second was declarations, rhetoric about the ongoing commitment to the 2030-2060 carbon peaking targets, but the massive coal build-out at the same time. And finally, I think the worsening tensions between the US and China, but towards the end of the year, a pretty productive bilateral outcome at Sunnylands, um, which helped COP28. These kind of tensions and contradictions, I think, will remain and some of them will be heightened this year, especially the third, as we have elections in Taiwan next week. We have elections in the US at the end of the year, and this could generate significant instability. Now, underlying all of these contradictions are two contradictions that we often discuss, and that's, of course, the role of the state and the role of the markets in China, as well as the role of sort of Beijing and national government and local stakeholders, which I believe will come up in our discussions. Now, with all that introduction, let's start with, I guess, the economy and the macro outlook. At the beginning of last year, the Chinese economy seemed to be slowing. Sort of, There was, there was expectations of a big rebound, and there was a slowdown, stabilization. Anders, do you want to set the stage for us for sort of what happened in 2023, and what can we expect for 2024? I think that 2023... It was neither the best of times nor necessarily, as it may have seemed, the worst of times. In the first half of the year, the lack of a big snapback rally or a surge of growth, combined with this major distress in the real estate sector and the fact that the Chinese government was not planning to do a full-bore economic stimulus at that time, these factors had analysts talking about Maybe China is entering a lost decade. There might be Japanization of the Chinese economy, as one media outlet put it. And since then, since the first half, I mean, there have been some more positive signals. Again, not the best of times, however. Real estate is nowhere near recovering. But on the other hand, maybe consumer spending has held up reasonably well. Domestic travel numbers are quite strong, maybe even record-breaking at certain time periods, like over the October holiday and then forecasts for future economic growth have been trending upwards. So the People's Bank of China, PBOC, guided to 5% growth for 2024. 
And then the International Monetary Fund, IMF, raised its outlook for China in 2024 from 5% now to 5.4%. So things seem to be holding up, if not actually looking up to a big surge of growth or anything like that would be led by a major stimulus. So that's um, that's how I see things economically. Do you agree with that assessment? And what does it mean for oil and gas demand? What were the growth drivers for oil and gas demand in 2023? And do they look similar in 2024? And I think that was the sort of confusing bit, right? That we looked at the macro data and you have to say, it, and I think we've said it before, there's not, there are very few clear correlations between GDP or sort of macro metrics and oil and gas demand. But that seeming discrepancy was very much surprising to the markets. And I think clearly it wasn't as bad as it seemed. There were drivers of economic growth that perhaps we had underestimated and the kind of three new industries of that we've talked about, EVs, batteries, solar panels, had offered greater support and offset some of the weakness in the real estate sector. There's still an element of stockpiling in the system for oil, less so for gas, but clearly for oil and chemicals that sort of made growth very strong and, and sort of highlighted this disconnect. I think this year we're going to see, at least on the macroeconomic front, clearly signs that policymakers are not, they don't seem to be panicking, right? There's focusing on supporting growth, not on doing all the years of de-risking, on supporting these new areas of, of economic growth. And this sort of, we'll see what the growth target, the GDP target for the year around 5%. For oil, the drivers are going to be slightly different because we're not going to see the same increases in mobility. And we'll talk about EVs and their impact later on. Jet demand that will come back, but chemicals will remain very, very strong. And I think that is going to be one driver of growth for this year. And that, of course, also supports gas because gas use in the chemicals as a feedstock is is also a, um, a big area of demand. So I think these tensions might be less visible this year. We're probably not going to see oil demand growth come in as strong and as high as it was last year. And there's also a question of sentiment, right? I think there's an issue of we're starting this year with less confidence than we did last year. But I guess the one thing that I have that I do want to put out there and I think is changing, and I'm saying this a little bit cautiously, is something in the policy mindset. Last year, we were clearly, we're sort of there was a need to drive and generate growth. There was a need to reach that 5% target. And energy was seen as a, a means to generating growth, not just as a means to ensuring that then economic activity could take place. I think we are now coming to the midpoint of the 14 five-year plan. We had a sort of interim, interim assessment for the 14 five-year plan published that noted the lag in energy intensity and CO2 emissions intensity targets. The pendulum seems to be shifting towards, all right, we've got two more years for the 14 five-year plan. There are certain targets that need to be met. We've seen a new air pollution plan issued. That means less coal. It means cleaning up the skies. So I think we could get a push for blue skies to put it a bit simplistically, over the next couple of years that slightly alter the balance between a kind of more growth-led mindset and a more environmental mindset. And again, I say that tentatively because we have to see that sort of play out in reality, but the rhetoric seems to be shifting in that way. But Philip, I want to bring you into the conversation. You are in Beijing. You're a man on the ground right now. Um, any additional observations, either on the broader energy policy framework or air quality in Beijing, uh, the mood on the ground ahead of the year of the dragon, anything that you can share with us? 
Well, yes, Mikhail. I mean, I've been in Beijing now for a week, and most days the air has been clear. I mean, today, bright blue skies, you know, minus five at night and plus one in the day. Beijing winter at its best. Whether that reflects pollution control or the economy is, is a matter of debate, of course. Uh, on the economy, I can say at least from my Chinese family's perspective, uh, you know, the real estate market, both rental and sales, is very slow. We've seen the latest purchasing managers index decline further in December, not least due to weak demand from overseas. Consumer and factory gate prices continue to decline. And as Anders mentioned, the service sector is the one bit that's growing. And of course, underlying all this is local government debt remains a serious problem. So I think, you know, look out for more stimulus measures early in the year, whether they are direct or through throwing money at the economy or indirect through rules for banks. Uh, let's see. Anders, if we shift gears to energy policy and to kind of supplies in 2023, obviously it was a great year for renewable energy. What does this mean for 2024? Does that massive uptick actually mean a slowdown or is there such momentum in the system that we're going to see more of this? And what can you say about the outlook for climate policy? It's really hard to overstate the growth of renewable energy in China in 2023 especially in the field of solar power, which has been discussed and mentioned in the Chinese media and government reports as one of the three new industries, which has been a growth driver in the last year. The amount of solar that China installed already by the end of the third quarter, China had already added more solar PV by capacity than the United States has installed in total. And that just usually accelerates and has accelerated over the course of the fourth quarter. So I think that the numbers are not final yet, but probably by the end of the year, China had added uh, roughly 200 gigawatts of solar. And that's the first year that China cracked the triple digits in gigawatt additions. And obviously that makes China by far the world's largest additions of solar power. And wind also saw a very strong year, much stronger than the prior year. So you know, somewhere in the high 30s to 40 gigawatts of additions of wind. So this has really been a dramatic growth year for renewable energy. Of course, it's also been a continuation of the boom in construction of new coal-fired plants. We talked about before how many of the provinces that are leading in the additions of new wind and solar capacity are also leading in the additions of new coal plants and may have actually overcapacity in coal despite adding quite a large number of renewables. A lot of the renewables additions have been led by distributed energy, including especially the whole county solar PV program, which is a program for uh, rural, more rural counties in general, not necessarily completely rural areas. So most of the provinces in this program are actually located in Eastern China, the more heavily populated provinces, but the installations are, might be in more rural areas. Uh, these are rooftop installations, commercial government buildings, and that program is coming to an end at the end of last year. So basically, the expectation would be just in the normal course of things that the additions of distributed energy under that program would then slow down. But in addition, both government and provinces have been seeking to tamp down on growth in solar in certain respects. We've had guidance that solar would 
slow down next year from its torrid pace of this past year. And in addition, some provinces, Shandong province in particular, but also some neighboring provinces, have been listing counties where new distributed solar cannot be added due to grid constraints. Now, nevertheless, despite this, it does seem clear that the growth of renewable energy is affecting the energy mix. As you know, coal had been supplementing for very poor hydro conditions. However, solar and wind output have been growing strongly. They haven't been able to match the increase in electricity demand yet, but they are growing in terms of their overall share at well over the two percentage point level, which is what I personally use as my indicator for whether China is broadly speaking on track to decarbonize its electric power sector. So the slowdown that you've just been talking about, do you think that's more related to that sort of a pause to let grid developers and infrastructure catch up with the massive additions that we've seen to date? Or is this actually China's so much ahead of, or well on track and ahead of its 1,200 gigawatts of installed wind and solar target? So does that mean that we're going to see a, a slowdown now for another good few years? It is clear that it's another case of the best of times, the worst of times, where the extremely rapid pace of installations is not viewed in China as being something that could be sustained over the long term. And yet, at the same time, China has expanded its overall manufacturing capacity in the solar space quite dramatically. So there is this overcapacity, which will inevitably reduce the price of solar energy still further. And that will, of course, squeeze the industry. It will potentially lead to uh, downsizing in certain uh, companies that are less competitive. I think that it's difficult for the government to uh, actually clamp down so much that the industry really collapses. And as I observed in my paper, in the past, when China has experienced these boom and bust cycles, at each stage, the wind and solar industries, and now I think that we should also speak of the electric vehicle and battery industries, at each stage when there is overcapacity and a winnowing out of the, let's say, less efficient or less competitive players, the industry has emerged more strongly and the growth has sustained. And of course, we should always emphasize that we, up until the present, are confident that China is committed to the 2030-2060 goals of peaking and then uh, reaching carbon neutrality by 2060, and indeed that China is on track However, I do believe that there are legitimate concerns that the lack of power market reform and the desire of provinces to build out more coal capacity, combined with the perception that the renewable expansion has been perhaps a little bit overdone, could not only lead to, let's say, the slowing of new capacity installations in solar and wind in those provinces, but actually could lead ultimately to the curtailment of renewable energy or to lower payments to renewable generators that ultimately squelch the industry's expansion further. That hasn't happened yet. There hasn't been any increase in curtailment, which is some uh, problem when renewable energy can produce energy, but that electricity cannot be used by the system. That peaked several years ago, and uh, the curtailment that is peaked uh, several years ago and has been controlled through administrative means. But will all those administrative means remain in force or will provinces, which generally have sought to maximize the utilization of coal energy, will they prefer to use coal energy and therefore use the excess capacity of solar in local areas as a justification for increasing curtailment, which could ultimately slow the energy transition? 
And of course, you talked about this in your recent paper on power market reforms. You talked about the risk that China's huge coal build-out, combined with slow movement on spot markets, holds and, I guess, exacerbates some of these risks that you've just been talking about for renewables. So how does that play out in 2024? How, in, you know, in the NEA guidance for the year, in the National Energy Administration guidance for the year, I note that power of market reforms was, I think, the fifth item on the list after energy security and supply security. So to put it simply, is coal still king? It's interesting that in the NEA document, it was mentioned First, uh, the fossil fuels and China's resource endowment, which I believe is equivalent to mentioning coal as a leading uh, resource of China, they were mentioned as a backstop. So I think that that is still the government's official policy is that new coal construction is being added merely as a backup to increasing renewable capacity. And so far, we can say that that does appear to be the case, even if it's going into provinces that already have adequate coal capacity to meet their peak load. And therefore, the slowdown in market reforms does seem to reflect the provincial interest in being self-sufficient in energy. I think that another interesting aspect of the balance between the state and market is how much more emphasis, I believe, is being placed on kind of administrative policies. And you see that in the renewable space where the, um, the addition of storage is expanding rapidly, and I perceive most of that is due to policy. And of course, storage is a way to balance, especially solar energy, not not so much for wind energy. In addition, you have some very strict requirements as to when electric vehicles can be charged. They should be charged from off-peak power. So a lot of things are being done through administrative means instead of through, let's say, price signals in spot markets. And you just mentioned storage. Can you give us some of the latest, I guess, numbers and the efforts to ramp up storage? Here again, the numbers are eye-popping, both for pumped hydro as well as for batteries. And batteries, again, this is one of the three new industries that has been a driver or perceived as a driver of growth. China added 12 gigawatts of battery energy storage in 2023 through the third quarter. And that you know, overall capacity reached 20 gigawatts by the end of the year. That represents 900% market growth. Uh, the costs for stationary storage have also been falling throughout the year, reaching 600 RMB per kilowatt hour of energy storage capacity. So that will continue to drive new additions of stationary energy storage, which is interesting. Uh, you know, stationary energy storage doesn't necessarily use the same technologies as those for electric vehicles, but with the slight slowdown in electric vehicle markets, I think that that has ultimately helped costs on the stationary energy storage side as well. Philip, I want to turn to you now for, I guess, a brief update on nuclear. One of those things that we tend to talk about every so often and end of year is a good a good time to look back. In late December, China approved the construction of four new nuclear power plants. And I think in 2022 and 2023, it approved 10 units each per year, which I think is pretty much in line with plans. But is this roughly in line with what you've been seeing with your expectations? Does it change in any way your views on the role of nuclear? No, I think this is what one might expect. I mean, one needs to remember that although uh, China's nuclear ambitions are huge and that it's the third largest capacity in the world at the moment, and probably by the end of this decade, the largest capacity in the world, you know, what 
looks big in China is actually small. It's still only 4% of, of, of electricity generation. So if we look at where we are now, we've got 53 or so gigawatts of capacity in operation, another 27 or so gigawatts under construction. So, you know, given that it takes five to six years to complete uh, plants in China, which is faster than most other places, you know, we're looking at 80 gigawatts by 2028-29. One is expecting, you know, eight to 10 plants to come on stream each year over the coming years, really, if they want to reach 130 gigawatts by 2035. So this is not really a surprise. It's it's part of the plan. And I think what will be interesting to watch is, do they start approving inland plants? Because after the Fukushima accident, any plans for plants inland were just were just closed down uh, because of the risk of pollution to fresh water supplies. And some of the sort of proposed uh, projects uh, on the formal list are inland. So I think as we go forward, that will be the interesting thing to see is not do they just keep the pace of approvals and construction, uh, but do they allow inland plants? So back to you, Michal. We had lots of rhetoric from China at the COP meeting, the Sunnylands Declaration. You know, after two or three years of, of talk of focus of energy security in China, are we seeing a, a swing back, as you sort of hinted at before, towards climate and environment? I would say that it's a tentative yes. And I guess COP and Sunnylands are symptoms of it rather than the causes. I think it is very much closely linked to what is happening domestically. And so the fact that China is falling behind 14 five-year plan targets, that there were concerns before sort of late last year about pollution rising again, all helped tip the pendulum slightly back in favor of climate and environment. And I think we do have to be careful that it's not a binary, right? It's not either or, but it did feel like last year the focus was very much on economic growth and energy security and environment took a back seat. I think the fact also that the climate agenda was useful in the bilateral US-China agenda helped this. And, and the Sunnylands Declaration, we talked about it both in our comment at the end of the year and in a podcast that Anders and Jim recorded at the end before COP. It was very meaningful that uh, the US-China pledge to triple renewables, the commitment to triple renewables was very noteworthy. Of course, at COP28, it was, it was a bit more complicated because of the lack of baseline, because for China to triple renewables based on 2020 numbers is easy to triple renewables based on 2023 numbers, as we've just been talking about, is much harder. Again, it doesn't mean that China isn't committed. There's an issue of sort of definitions and what China's willing to sign up to internationally and what it feels like its partners are willing to sign up to. But that was the Sunnylands Declaration was very useful. And again, I think it sort of reaffirms China's commitment to net zero and slightly shifts the balance in terms of implementation to more active and perhaps more aggressive implementation this year. The other thing that was noteworthy in Sunnylands is that China was potentially talking about post-peak emissions and hinting that early peaking is possible, again, at COP. The Chinese envoy, Xie Zhenhua, and, and the whole rhetoric was much more cautious um, that China will only communicate any new targets in line with its national determined contributions in 2025, that there was, you know, it wasn't going to be issuing any more aggressive or more ambitious statements. And Sunnylands offered a bit more optimism 
but again, I think this is more sort of staggering of, of, of semantics and just making sure that international commitments are ones that China can very easily meet, whereas domestically it is already moving forward. And because the reality is such that it can and it both should. So I guess the short answer is, I think, tentatively, yes. To me, one of the interesting things that came out for COP28, and I'm going to turn this back to you, Philip, of course, the significant pledges to triple renewables globally does inject new momentum. We had phase out of fossil fuels for the first time included in in COP28 and in the language. So really sort of very big momentum and renewed ambitions for the energy transition. But of course, this raises one of the tensions and the issues that we've been talking about for a while. The fact that all of this is going to, or a lot of it is going to be made in China and how China is dominant in these new energy supply chains. And we've seen over the past month or so more hints of protectionism or perhaps the potential to weaponize some of these uh, new materials. In December 21st, the Ministry of Commerce issued an updated export control catalog where it banned the export of uh, material processing technologies for making rare earth permanent magnets. Just this week, or sort of at the end of December, there's a a draft revision of its critical mineral resource law. What does this all add up to? Is China weaponizing critical materials? And how should we view these steps? Well, if we we look at the critical minerals, then I think, I mean, we go back to 2011-12, where China you know, reduced the export of rare earth elements. And since then, it's, it's sustained quotas on the production and the export of rare earth metals. Yeah, so this is a long-term strategy. And in 2023, we've seen powers being given to the government to control the export of gallium and germanium, principally aimed at chips, but of course gallium is used in in solar panels, and more recently of graphite, which is absolutely critical for lithium-ion batteries. And those all, you know, they haven't squeezed them tight yet, but uh, as an analogy, it's like a strangler stroking a victim's neck and saying, well, well, you know, if you if you don't do what I want, then I will squeeze your neck harder. So so that is not is, is a potential threat that has not yet been executed. I think the export ban on rare earth element processing equipment to make magnets is much more interesting because that is a ban. So, yeah, the West better start building magnet making equipment pretty fast. And, you know, to what extent this builds up, we've yet to see whether it will become targeted at certain countries. We've yet to see. I mean, earlier this 2023, sorry, I haven't skipped to 2024 in my mind yet. In 2023, we saw the stopping of of exports of graphite to Sweden for its battery plant, instead sending it to Hungary, where there's a Chinese battery plant. So to what extent these controls become selective or not, I think we've yet to see. So I think this is like a warning shot over the bows. And I go back, gosh, to the 1976, where Argentina fired a shot over the bows of the research ship Shackleton, the UK research ship. And that was a forerunner of the six-year-later invasion of the Falklands. So I think, yeah, these are warning shots saying, yeah, 
these are things we can do. Potentially ominous signs. And of course, the trade restrictions and, and trade tension has been present and continues to grow about around electric vehicles. But before we talk about the international dimension, I guess, Anders, I want to ask you about the domestic electric vehicle market. Growth last year slowed, albeit modestly. Um, are there constraints on critical materials that the government is worried about? Or is are the drivers for the slower growth completely different? Um, how do we think about electric vehicle growth this year? What does it mean for decarbonization? What does it mean for oil demand? A very long question, um, but give us your thoughts. I don't think that the uh, shortages of critical materials have necessarily impacted the domestic market for for the manufacturing of electric vehicles and electric vehicle batteries in China so far. In fact, some uh, some minerals, notably lithium, have come down in price, uh, leading to an ongoing fall in battery costs for manufacturing. So therefore, it is somewhat interesting to note this slight slowing down. And when I say slowing down, it, it's kind of seemingly a ridiculous word because on one hand, you see that the share of electric vehicles in the uh, overall vehicle market continues to rise quite rapidly. So total share in passenger vehicles for the full year, likely around 35%, and that's up from around 25% the prior year. So increasing share by 10 percentage points doesn't seem like a slowdown, but it is when you compare it to the prior year, which was just so amazingly rapid in terms of the expansion of both output and market share. Now, the ending month for November, uh, which is last month we have available, it looks like around a 40% share, and that is similar to the way things ended up in 2023, which was around a 30% share. So again, we're seeing the year-end share also up by 10%. But the industry is guiding that the full year for 2024 would be more like 40%, so basically kind of a steady state market as opposed to a continuation of this rapid growth. And then more notably, we're talking these percentages that I just gave, that is all the new energy vehicle share. And when you break it down between the plug-in hybrid share and the electric vehicle share, then there's a little bit more evidence of a slowdown. In particular, for the latest month, electric vehicles grew by 20% year-on-year, month-to-month, whereas plug-in hybrids were growing more like 80%. And that is a little bit actually higher for the pure electric vehicles than it had been for some prior months because of the poor comparisons with the end of the year last year, I mean, in 2022, due to COVID, where um, the market was a little bit soft for vehicles in general. So some months of 2023 saw year-on-year growth for pure electrics of you know single-digit percentages. So that's really showing how the electric vehicle market is slowing down, even if the plug-in hybrid and new energy vehicle market is still expanding quite rapidly. In terms of the impact on gasoline demand, the figures for electric vehicle charging do show still very strong growth, which reflects their increase in overall share of vehicle ownership. And basically, right now, we're talking about 100% year-on-year increases in electricity demand for vehicle charging and a total amount of electricity substitution for gasoline of around a quarter million barrels a day. An additional driver, at least historically, of renewable deployment in China has been 
trade restrictions and tariff and new trade investment rules in the United States and the EU will impact China's role in global manufacturing and deployment. And of course, we have election year coming up in the United States. How will you, uh, you know, Michal and Philip, how do you imagine this will play into China's energy policy? I mean, I guess the the EV point, we've seen it in solar before, right? When there were trade restrictions or anti-dumping efforts, then all of the capacity that some of it would have been exported was sort of domestically consumed, deployed, used. I think in the case of EVs, they're certainly going to continue to be exports. And I guess, you know, this is the, the, the elephant in the room is geopolitics this year, the busy electoral year. And I will take maybe a brave, maybe a stupid call here now to say that I actually think that China will want to maintain stability in this year where we have Taiwan's election coming up next week. We've got U.S. presidential elections in November, EU parliament changeover in June. I actually think that, again, China will want to maintain stability or at least try to avoid big boat rocking events. The electoral processes, of course, can be quite rocky. So I think rhetoric could get very animated. The risk of accidents or miscalculations is huge. And if we use the sea metaphor one last time, and I'm very conscious of what you were just saying, Philip, so I'm a bit worried about it. But I think this year might not be smooth sailing overall. And as I said, we've got January 13, Taiwan's presidential election, a test of already strained cross-strait ties but not just elections. On 24th of January, the EU Commission unveils a package of economic security measures that will, again, impact the kind of trade and investment relationship with China. I think a week later, we have the EU and Washington in talks about trade and technology, sort of transatlantic talks about trade and technology. All of these will sort of highlight and I think exacerbate China's feeling of kind of being isolated or needing to ramp up its technology self-sufficiency. We also have a potential visit by Chinese President Xi Jinping to Europe and to France this year, where they're going to celebrate 60 years of Sino-French relations. So I think, and, and of course, before the end of the year, there has to be an EU determination on tariffs on Chinese green tech. So, I mean, the reason I bring this up is that I think before I get to what this means for China's energy policy, all these events also highlight some of the tensions and dilemmas that Europe faces, right? I think for France, inevitably, there's going to be a lot of business deals that will want to be signed. There has been a new subsidy scheme issued in France uh, for EVs that aims to uh, force Chinese manufacturers to set up shop in France and, and kind of to reshore to France. But, you know, we've seen a lot of loopholes around this. Can sort of producers like BYD, for instance, you talked about Hungary earlier, can they sell cars into France based on Hungarian manufacturing to get around this, you know, will there be a European view on Chinese investments in green tech into Europe? How many loopholes will come around this? Will there be a common line between France, for instance, and the EU, von der Leyen, which has been sort of the face of all these trade uh, negotiations and potential restrictions? Will she be back this summer? And then what happens if Trump gets elected? You know, can there be a joint position or a joint view between the EU and the US on Chinese green tech trade and investment barriers. I think all these things will play out this year and will be carefully monitored by China. But I go back to my point that China, I don't think, will necessarily want to use trade weaponization unless it perceives that there are, I guess, aggressions or, or provocations made by the US or the EU or individual countries. And in this kind of context, there is so much scope for perceived aggressions. But 
in terms of the priorities, I think the NEA guidance already encapsulates some of that and, and the mineral legislation. Supply security remains front and center of all this for energy, for materials, a focus on domestic production, a focus of domestic capabilities, while also greening supplies as much as possible. Self-sufficiency in technology and innovation, better control, better management, better management of the sector. And I think if the market can provide that better management, so be it. But it's not necessarily the first priority. It's about delivering. I think that's where there will be an interesting tension between delivering supplies and delivering green supplies. With everything that we've just talked about, the role of coal, the potential well, slowdown in, in renewable deployment is not it's sort of a semantic slowdown, right? These are still huge numbers. How much of it will be fossil fuel and non-fossil fuel? And I think there's going there's some ambiguity about the role of other countries in cooperation, uh, because nominally, again, the NEA guidance talks about the Belt and Road and talks about collaboration with other countries. But the reality is complicated because the year is going to be animated, at least on the rhetorical front. Um, so I think we can expect it to remain very confusing for investors and foreign observers. But and as Philip just pointed out, the kind of finger is on the, the jugular with the ability to to actually go for a cut at any point. Now, is that cut? Is there an overreach? Is that cut too deep? That is all possible and potential. So and to paraphrase what you were saying earlier, Anders, I think we're going to see both the best of times and the worst of times this year. Philip, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Well, Anders, oh, Mikhail, I'm going to be a, like a politician and I'm going to answer the question that you should have asked. And that's what happens with all this overcapacity in renewable manufacturing? And if we don't have to go back 10, 15 years to find out that it floods the world market. And, and I think this poses the question to, as it were, OECD countries, is what is more important? Is it uh, going green or is it defending economic activity? And, you know, you look at the EU, you look at the UK and the US, it isn't clear. You know, if we want to go green, we just buy Chinese stuff. If we want to make everything ourselves, then the transition will be slower and more expensive. So I think this overcapacity of manufacturing in China and possible slowdown of the rate of deployment poses a real challenge to the West, to companies and, and to national governments. And of course, these are all topics that we will be following and covering uh, and looking at this year. We've gone a bit longer than our usual podcast, but I think it was justified given the depth and the insights in this conversation. But I do want to stop there for today. Philip, Anders, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, the audience, for joining us. And I hope you've enjoyed and appreciated the discussion today. Uh, as ever, all our podcasts and other research reports and the comment that we've referred to are on our website. We welcome your feedback and thoughts and we look forward to our next discussion and many more discussions in 2024. We wish you all a very good year and a very good year of the dragon. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts as well as our written research on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programs, then please contact us at information 
at oxfordenergy.org.